0: Hello everyone and welcome to another entrant in our Crisis to Resilience series here at Canada 2020. Today we're talking about keeping Canada connected and I'm very uh, thankful that you've all had a chance to, to tune in today um, and I want to thank all of our participants uh, who, who will be joining us over the next uh, uh, little bit. We've got a really jam-packed agenda to get through um, and uh, Given the, the, the topic of today's conversation and the, um, the, the, this week's announcement on the Universal Broadband Fund, uh, which was a perfect table setter for today's conversation, we got a lot to get to. Um, I'm going to quickly go through our, um, our, our run of show for today, and then I'll talk a little bit about sort of how we're, we're setting the conversation. Um, but, uh, thank you all to those of you joining us, uh, on zoom and also to those of you who are tuning in on, on YouTube. Um, uh, today at, at one uh, as part of this, uh, this conversation, we'll be joined by the Honorable Marianne Montsef, uh, who is the minister of rural economic development and, uh, women and gender equality. She'll be sitting down in conversation with Sarah Minnis. She's the president of the Canadian rural revitalization fund. So that's happening at 1.30. Uh, right now, we, um, we have a, just a, a, a fantastic and a rock star panel um, talking uh, about some of the, uh, I think, more enabling pieces of what we're trying to build here with improved connectivity. Uh, we have the good fortune of being joined by Simon Kennedy, the Deputy Minister at Innovation, Science, and Economic Development. Uh, Michelle Beck, who is the Vice President of North American Sales at Telesat. Uh, Dean Prevost, uh, who's the president of Rogers for Business, and Willa Black, who is the vice president of corporate affairs at Cisco. I am going to uh, move now to our, our panel conversation. I'll just simply say, welcome. Thank you all very much for uh, joining us here on our uh, Keeping Canada Connected event. Uh,
1: how are you all doing today? Simon, I'll, I'll start with you. <laughs> uh, doing fine. Uh- people watching online can probably detect that this is not actually me standing in front of the innovation science and economic development building, but you don't want to see what my spare bedroom looks like. (laughs) Um, but, uh, we're fortunate at I said actually to have quite good connectivity. So, uh, I've been in and out of the office as needed, uh, you know, to go to cabinet meetings and things like that. But as an institution, almost all of our staff are are working from home. And I think it's, it is a testament to the connectivity we enjoy and, uh, it's been a real godsend during the pandemic. Uh,
0: absolutely. And uh, I, I should say, I mean, Simon, this, this panel that we have here today with Dean from, from Rogers, Willa from Cisco, Michelle from Telesat, I mean, Canada 2020, we, we've built it, I think, quite intentionally to try and capture people who are sort of across the connectivity ecosystem and try to get a, a, a good handle on uh, what we're trying to enable by improving connectivity across the country. Um, uh, Dean, and Michelle, I'm gonna get to you shortly, but Simon, I, I, I thought I would start with you um, because as was mentioned in the announcement this week, um, the announcement of the $1.75 billion Universal Broadband Fund um, was an acknowledgement that these issues aren't new, right? But certainly that the, the, the pandemic has um, brought them to front of mind. I'm curious Simon can just as a, as a as a way of our into this conversation today, can you give us a sense of the problem that we're trying to solve? Um, and then and then we can maybe get into some of the the ways in which we do that. but like scope out the issue for me.
1: Sure. well, uh, I mean the immediate you know the the, the immediate proximate problem, if you like, uh, that we're trying to solve for example, Alex, with the launch of the Universal Broadband Fund, is we want to make sure uh, that all Canadians have access to, to high-speed uh, Internet. Uh, and so that, you know, there is a, a remaining gap uh, that's significant. And the government set an objective to have all Canadians connected to high-speed Internet. And with the investments made through the UBF, we're hoping by 2026 to reach 98% of the population. So there will still be a small number of Canadians where we have to, you know, take additional steps that live in particularly hard to reach areas, but we want to get broad coverage of the entire population. The more fundamental issue, though, which I think is worth noting, and, and for those watching who maybe wonder a little bit about uh, the government's role, so I said my ministry, we're a funder along with a couple of other government agencies of, of, uh, of broadband access. So the Universal Broadband Fund we administer to partner up with, 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 com- with communities and with Internet service providers to expand access to broadband Internet. We're also a regulator, so you know, we, we actually do a lot of the, of the regulation of the equipment and of, and of, the, and of the, you know, the telecom companies and so on that actually provide the service. So we have a pretty significant policy role as well as a funding role. And one of the things that governments have you know, been thinking about and worried about for some time, uh, and it's a bit trite to say it, but it's worth reminding ourselves, we are increasingly living in, a, in an economy that's, that's enabled by data and enabled by digital. And that's true even of industries that you might think of as being kind of traditional, like take agriculture, for example. You know, a modern farming operation, you might be surprised to learn, actually relies on data and digital technologies, you know, to a much greater extent than maybe the average person might realize. Uh, If you look at the market capitalization of the stock market, for example, and you go back to, say, the 1970s, some significant portion of the market cap of the stock market was actually tangible assets. It's actually equipment, buildings, you know, stuff and in inventory. Now, actually, the majority of the market cap of the stock market is made up of intangibles. I mean, things that, in a literal sense, don't even exist. So we're in a knowledge economy that's enabled by, in and, and, and a knowledge economy where, frankly, a lot of the value is actually in the information as opposed to the physical asset. That makes access to data and digital extraordinarily important. And there's all kinds of academic research that shows that, that firms that actually adopt digital technologies that actually, you know, are able to use and manipulate data in these sophisticated ways that we see, you know, now in the 21st century, they actually enjoy a significant competitive advantage over firms that can't do that. And that makes access to the Internet and the ability to move large volumes of data, that makes, that makes connectivity like, kind of like the lifeblood. It's actually essential. Uh, and so for us, this is an important piece of infrastructure. But it's an important piece of infrastructure because it actually enables economic success and economic competitiveness. And increasingly, it's important for even the smallest businesses in the most remote areas. You may have thought that it's all about high tech. It's actually about everybody. Uh, And and so that's why we think it's so important to make sure that Canadians get connected.
0: It's, It's so funny that you mentioned agriculture. I mean, Canada 2020, we ran a big agriculture project last year, and it essentially turned into a connectivity exercise um where you know you had farmers in 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 rural canada asking would you expect you know a downtown toronto business to you know run their business on dial-up and the answer of course is no and i know there's new entrants into the space i know um telus is launching uh telus agriculture today so there's 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 probably more to explore there um dean i i want to move to you here um And the, the purpose of this conversation obviously is to talk about, you know, sort of what's next, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to, to take a minute to look back, you know, when we went into lockdown nine months ago, um, and, and the slow and then very quick realization that our life is going to have to shift entirely online. Can you give us a bit of a snapshot of what that meant for Rogers and what you
2: had to do? You bet I will. So starting with Rogers as the company, um, we would have had hundreds of people working from home prior in an organization of twenty five thousand people within just a number of weeks. we had only a hundred a couple hundred folks who were in the offices. everybody else was working from home so but for folks who had to maintain critical infrastructure, we flipped to an entire at home model where we would have historically gone into homes to provision services. we had to move to essentially a video conference with the in-home with with the resident and deploy repair diagnose what was going on in the home with the assistance of someone in the home and that was like that was an entire change to the way we'd done things Uh, we had to over two weeks build the kind of network and capacity that would typically have taken us two years so it was an extraordinary time for everybody and it turned out i think as most canadians know and i speak maybe on behalf of the whole industry I think we did a pretty good job making sure everything continued to work when all of the use cases changed dramatically from you know kind of being serving people who are commuting in an office space downtown to everybody piling in at home with Zoom, with Netflix, with school, with all these other things happening. And everything worked and stayed up and was resilient. As a the guy who runs the Rodgers for Business side, we support the government substantially. And we had to help serve, you know, Services Canada shared services organization moved from being entirely in their offices to being able to speak to Canadians about what was happening and about the programs that were available in a way that uh, had never been done from a digital and remote point of view. So it was pretty extraordinary change.
0: Michelle. Um, and thank you. And thank you, Dean. Um, uh, speaking of change and speaking of, of, of opportunity, uh, Telesat obviously featured prominently in the UBF announcement this week. Um, Lots of details to get into, but can you just give us a, 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 a quick sense of like, okay, what does that mean for not only your company, but also the communities that you're looking to serve?
3: Sure, absolutely. Uh, so we uh, have been working um, actually quite extensively with said uh, with, uh, on this agreement um, over the course of uh, the past several, uh, several months. Um, it was uh, certainly important to us. Um, and uh, we, uh, you know, I mean, we we are quite pleased actually partnering with the government of Canada to bring this capacity uh, to um, uh, to these these communities that are underserved uh, today, satellite reliant, uh, underserved that don't have access to fiber connectivity, um, in order to uh, deliver uh, at minimum, at least the fifty by ten. Uh, CRTC uh, service targets um, and really get them online and, and get them access to true broadband, uh, low latency uh, service. Um, so it's, um, it's a recognition, uh, certainly that Leo can, in fact, uh, deliver that service. So we uh, acknowledge, uh, you know, and, uh, and appreciate the support of the government of Canada um, uh, with respect to that, uh, the fact that they have confidence in us delivering uh, this to uh, the communities. Um, you know, we have been doing it over the past 50 years. Uh, you know, we do it with the technology that we have uh, to, uh, that is available to us to deliver some of the latest, uh, some of the, the, the uh, uh, you know, the, the, using the latest uh, advances and technologies. And we have been incrementally uh, sort of adding capacity and uh, growing the capacity and making available capacity into a number of communities across the country. Um, and this is just taking it to the next level and the next step. Um, but truly, it will put them uh, essentially at the same, um, on the same footing as uh, most uh, everywhere else across Canada. So, giving them access to 50 by 10, um, I think they're going to be relieved. And we're really looking forward to doing it.
0: Um, Willa, uh, I, I have noticed you, you've been nodding along, um, uh, very nicely with, with both Simon and yes. Dean and Michelle. And and so, I, yeah. but, but I'm, the reason I was actually, I was very excited to have you join the panel here is that when I think about connectivity and sort of the whole ecosystem, my mind immediately goes to telecoms and immediately goes to the satellites. I tend, I, you know, to, to sometimes forget about equipment and systems that sort of underpin the exercise. So, um, can you, I know there's, there's lots of folks uh, watching here. I just got a ping from a friend of mine working on connectivity issues in BC. Like this. The sort of a, a cross-Canada stream right now. Can you give us a bit of a sense of, okay, how does a company like Cisco comment some of these issues and act as an, a connectivity enabler?
4: Sure. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I'm so thrilled to, to do this and uh, really appreciate being included in the discussion. Um, just so people know, in case you haven't heard of Cisco before, and you'll be forgiven for that, uh, we've been making the internet work since 1984. And 85% of the world's internet traffic travels over our hardware and our software and the net build and support uh, travels securely over these networks. And, and that capability extends to Canada's remote north. We have been active in and investing in Canada's remote north with a program called Connected North, um, since 2011. And, um, So what we did is working with a consortia and an ecosystem of um, NGO partners and private sector sector partners and some regional governments. We actually created, and and obviously in very um, close cooperation with the communities that we serve, we created a digital network, a digital experiential learning network to connect children in K-12 classrooms from the Yukon to Nunavut. To experiences and opportunities that they wouldn't ordinarily have uh, in their own communities. Things like mentoring, um, uh, mental health and wellness supports, uh, training for teachers, virtual field trips, um, you know, indigenous language instruction from one community to many. Um, None of that would have been possible without the investments of, of bandwidth that we've seen the federal government make over the last few years. And I want to applaud the federal government, uh, all of us, this is going to applaud the, the federal government because you really enabled the Connected North Network to thrive. We started in one community in, in um We were in pilot in 2013. We launched in 2014. We then spun the program off as a dedicated uh, charity doing uh, this incredible work of scale. And as of last week, we went into our 100th school we now serve two thousand teachers with a whole on demand curricula and um, and twenty thousand students so the one thing I will say about all of this i 've worked in a lot of these communities i 've been going back and forth to the north for a long time now, and um, you know our purpose at Cisco is this belief that technology can be used for good, uh, and in this case, technology is used to deliver equity of opportunity and you know i 'm a mother, and you go up into these schools. And you see these kids, and you want the bus for your kids, and, and they absolutely deserve the same opportunities as the kids in the South do. And, you know, there's an enormous um, potential in the North, and, and connectivity is the way to unleash that. So, uh, so yeah, I am nodding a lot because, because I, I think that you know I've seen firsthand. We've seen at Cisco our engineers who go up there and do this work to get telepresence up and running. You know all the work we do building the digital curricula, all the partners that we pull into the project. And I'm I'm looking at you, government of Nunavut. If you guys are watching, you've been so awesome. This is tough work. You know we're playing the long game here, but my gosh, we've got to stick with it because that. Really, at the end of the day, it's what it's all about: making sure these kids have the opportunities they need.
0: thrive. there, you go. Um, that' fantastic, and, and um, uh, just a nod to the Q and A here, uh, particularly in Zoom. There's some great questions coming in. I'm going to get to them in a second. But uh, Simon and Dean, um, you know, we, we've heard mention of. Um, uh, we, we've heard mention of, obviously enabling healthcare. We've uh, heard questions about enabling um, education. There's a lot of stuff that has, I think, taken hold in this emergency response period over the last nine months. But as we look forward to, you know, post-pandemic, obviously acknowledging the, the moment that we're in, it's, it's, it's still very serious. Um, the question becomes like, okay, how much of this behavior is sticky? And and how much does the work being done to improve connectivity enable um, those advancements? So, I mean, m- maybe Simon, I'll I'll go to you here. And this is something I know you and I have talked about a little bit. Like, apart from giving people opportunity, what are we? What are some actual examples of things that we're hoping to enable through improved um, uh, investments that you're making?
1: Well. Uh... I mean, I think there's a there's a range of things. so uh, without wanting to be too clever about it, um, there are the things that we know about, uh, which which are existing use cases. And Willa just talked about education, for example. It's a really, really good example. Uh, we've you know there's been a lot of press reporting and a lot of stakeholders who've talked about with kids you know being at home and and, and people having you know having to work from home. If you're in a rural area, say with 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 connectivity, that's not so great. Some of the use cases that we're already really familiar with, like the ability to telework, um, those those can be compromised without good connectivity. So I think broader universal coverage will enable uh, the deployment of, of, of existing use cases that we actually know about already, and that actually work well, <clears throat> say in urban areas or in areas with, with with good internet coverage. But which you can't get if you're in a rural area. Then there are kind of use cases I would say that are not speculative. But where they, they aren't in widespread deployment yet, and so for example, there have been there has been discussion around some of the use cases that you might see as we get wide deployment of, of fifth generation uh, technology. So when five G comes in, we know because of its ability to trans you know transfer very large amounts of data, very low latency, it might actually allow for things like you know autonomous you know m- much easier to deploy things like autonomous vehicles and so on. Some of that's speculative in the sense that we we won't actually know totally infrastructures in place all the possible interesting businesses that might that might um, that might kind of grow you know grow in that kind of environment and I guess that takes me to the last piece which is there is an element a measure by which some of the use cases have yet to be defined and by that I mean you know one um, look um, I'm not sure economists would necessarily you know describe it this way but you could think of Broadband, high-speed broadband is—it's it's like a general-purpose technology. It's a little bit like electricity. At the time that electricity was discovered, um, you know, people might have said, "Well, why would you build an electric grid? Like, you know, you don't have any use cases." Well, it turns out there's a lot of use cases for electricity once you have a once you have an electric grid that works. And I think we saw this after the dot-com bubble. Uh, you know, Dean or others might have a, a better view of this, but I think there there are people that said, you know, there was massive investment in broadband in the late 1990s and early 2000s, frankly, some of that fiber, in a sense, didn't have a use case. The use cases have been proven out by Netflix and Amazon and on and on and on, and all kinds of business models. Nobody disputes anymore that we're in this knowledge based, you know, increasingly online economy. A lot of that was enabled initially by investments prior to those use cases being, being on the table, I mean, as real business propositions. So I think Part of the government interest in this is we actually know that this unlocks economic value. There's tremendous evidence to show that. We can point to existing use cases. The really interesting thing is what, what about the businesses no one has even imagined yet, which might be enabled by the wide adoption and, and and, and deployment of broadband. So I'll stop there.
0: Well, you know what, Dean, I think that's, um, that's a great pivot to, to you. And, um, you know, I, I, I heard a lot of, uh, a lot of keywords. I think I know that uh, that matter a lot to Roger. So I'll, I'll let you pick up there.
2: Sure. I think Simon, you led into this so well, uh, having been in telecom since the late nineties, you're absolutely right. The, uh, we didn't know exactly how it would be used. We didn't know that the advent of a smartphone applications, big screens, 4K would drive demand in ways that we never imagined. In fact, I remember thinking in the early 90s that we didn't need speeds beyond six megabit because that which, that's what you needed to watch a hockey game without the puck being jittery on the screen. And here we are where you've got gigabit speeds into houses and businesses and you can run everything uh, remote and online. So you're absolutely right. We don't know. But what we do know is that the... uh the, the world is basically a world of distributed need. And what that means is that if you can create connectivity that is distributed, that is reliable, fast, low latency, meaning it goes back and forth to the cloud quickly and private, you can do almost anything with it. For example, we've got uh, mine sites in Saskatchewan that are enabled by uh, kind of remote capabilities that you don't have drivers. You've got a pre-programmed route for, for these vehicles to move. It's incredibly safe. They've got sensors that determine uh, what's happening with the vehicles, when they need to be serviced. So all of the waste, the cost, and the safety issues of a classic mine site get removed because you've got broadband connectivity, it's untethered, it's private, and suddenly you can uh, you make your, your business case, the way you operate, changes dramatically. We're working with a utility in BC that's using existing sensors to send seismic information back to a centralized uh, command and use AI to determine if there's patterns that they need to be worried about. You can think about, uh, I don't know, smart cities, smart communities, period. You know, the use of, you know, maybe we're trying to talk about rural Canada, so maybe I'll skip smart cities because who cares about cities? We're, we're more interested in what happens with people uh, further away. But imagine communities that could, uh, in you know, the, all the services they provide are available to their to their constituency. It's easy to access. It's private. They can tell when things need to be done. They can point citizens to where they need to look. And in this time of the pandemic, that kind of sensible, private, personal communication is incredibly important. We see it across the board. You were talking about agriculture earlier. We see it in ports where you can know what's arriving at your port, your station, your warehouse. You don't need to go in and inspect the crates and do all of that. What you've got is temperature, motion, insect sensors, heat sensors that's sending the information a manifest is transmitted and you're able to do a lot of your work uh, in remote and in safe in safe ways that you couldn't otherwise do. So the use cases are honestly limitless. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Michelle, I want to bring you in here um, because uh, and Simon, I think you're, you're going to have a hand on, on this ball as well. Um, we've got a, a couple questions in the um, in the Q and A, particularly around in being inclusive, and involving indigenous communities, and making sure that they have access to um, uh, uh, this infrastructure and and these services. So, Michelle, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go to you first, and then Simon, if you want to elaborate and talk a little bit about um, uh, what what I said is doing to ensure that that takes place. But Michelle, let's uh, let's go to you first.
3: Sure. So, um, first and foremost, as part of uh, the agreement uh, uh, that we have with uh, with ISA, there is uh, a clear uh, objective to uh, connect um, as many of the uh, remote, uh, you know, in indigenous communities as we can. Many of them today are deemed to be satellite reliant uh, communities. Uh, we actually do serve a, a significant number of those communities. Uh, today and look forward to just enhancing the connectivity to these communities, bringing in more advanced uh, services uh, over our Leo constellation. Um, and also supporting, though, I mean, you know, we talk about economic growth and sort of some of these other applications. Um, you, you know, a lot of the uh, Indigenous uh, groups and, and uh, we know uh, some of the Inuit groups are into all kinds of uh, various businesses up north, and they see great, great potential with uh, the availability of uh, capacity and services over the Leo constellation. Uh, Because essentially, it it will probably be the uh, fastest, um, the highest performing uh, technology uh, to be able to deliver broadband connectivity to you know, essentially everywhere across Canada, uh, within the next couple of years and to do it affordably. So, uh, you know, we, you know, we, we look forward to, to working with them, um, to, to bring just the most basic connectivity that they need, you know, to support, um, you know, school work at home today. And and it's been, you know, so obvious that they lack even some of that, that, uh, you know the most basic connectivity today. They're they're stretched to the limit. Uh, when COVID hit, um, most of those indigenous communities came back to us looking for incremental capacity, uh, just to be able to meet uh, you know the surge in demand in those uh, in those communities. Uh, and we were, I mean, we responded. We responded very very quickly uh, to give as much capacity as we could uh, to all of these. Uh, uh, to the, to all of these communities and these various groups. Um, uh, but um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's basically to enhance sort of the, the basic connectivity for education, for work uh, you know, for uh, just generally their, their governance uh, you know, sort of in the links to the South um, you know, to promote uh, you know, just even their, their economic growth and their local businesses Tourism, uh, anything that they want to do, but to put them essentially on the same footing as um, other um, other communities have uh, anywhere across uh, across Canada. Uh, but but Leo is will be the vehicle to do that because we can reach everywhere, um, and it'll be high quality, high performing uh, connectivity.
0: Willa, I see you're off mute here, and I know that you had talked about um, about connecting to the North uh, before. Before I go back to Simon, um, I'm just wondering if you had a view on on, on sort of the um, uh, the Indigenous uh, component of um, of this.
4: Yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, so, a, a couple of quick points. Uh, first of all, to, to your point, Michelle, you, you could not agree more. You know, uh, the Connect North program operates in all 43 schools in, in Nunavut. The demand is is you know. Quite Quite significant um, to be able to resource these these online sessions, we can at the moment only run seven concurrent sessions but we 're in forty three schools and and so you know more investment is needed so that the opportunities are, are opened up. The second point that I would would make though um, the goal of this investment of bandwidth is is to deliver you know economic vitality is to achieve those those social outcomes, those social benefits in terms of education and health. Um, we need to be thinking in terms of parallel investments in, in programming in those use cases. We need it's, it's not good enough just to go in, you know, with the pipe and with you know, the hardware and the software and the WebEx and the wireless and all that other good stuff. Unless people on the ground understand how they can leverage it. Unless teachers are trained and coached, and, and what digital content is available, and how can they deploy that, um, unless there is some sort of support uh, locally, and, and you know, there's a lot of communities that we work with that were really open to these kinds of partnerships to build their own capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you look at telehealth, if you look at you know, digital education, all those things will lead you know to economic um, dynamism. And and uh, but we've got to understand what are those other pieces that we need to wrap around that in you know, significant investment in band and capacity. Ag- agree.
3: There we go. Fully agree with
0: that. Simon, let's um, uh, I, I'm curious about your your view on um, on indigenous and, and there's been a couple questions about um, uh, not just treating indigenous communities as as clients or recipients of a service, but uh, being inclusive, involving them in the process, in whether that's uh, whether that's uh, ownership or greater participation. What efforts is I said, or you know, across government, what efforts are you taking to uh, act on some of those calls?
1: Uh, yeah, thanks, Alex. So um, I just wanted to sort of agree with Michelle. I think the LEO the Leo project will be a, a significant boon to Indigenous communities, certainly in the north. Um, I, indigenous uh, communities are definitely a priority uh, for the government when it comes to connectivity. Um, if you look at the, the Connect Innovate program, for example, about a third of the money under the previous uh, broadband program wound up being um, – Uh, being spent to expand broadband access for indigenous communities. Uh, In the uh, universal broadband fund, uh, we're doing a couple of things to try to frankly facilitate access. One is we have a, like a navigator service. I don't remember the exact branding of it, but one of the things we discovered uh, with connect to innovate and previous programs, you have a lot of communities that want to engage and they want to, they want to make an application. They want to, they want to kind of play ball and, and get support. Um, broadband projects are complicated infrastructure projects in many cases and it requires a certain level of expertise and specialization and that can be really tough you don't have to be an indigenous community you can can be any any smaller community might not necessarily have people on staff that have that kind of knowledge so we've got a, a kind of an intake process under the universal broadband fund that's really meant to provide more boutique service so that actually communities that are interested can come and sit down with us and and, and get a bit of a pathfinding and navigation and, and, and indigenous communities we would see as being actually, a, a, you know, pretty critical uh, a client, if you like, in that regard, the UBF uh, program also has a, a set aside uh, specifically uh, to deal with uh, mobile internet um, uh, for indigenous communities, because there are going to be some areas uh, where fiber is going to be uh, not really practical or, or, or kind of not really economic, but actually mobile would be really, really uh, important. And that could be in the communities themselves, or it could be on certain stretches of roadway and so on. The highway tiers in BC, many people talk about as being an area that has, frankly, inadequate uh, coverage. That may or may not be something that gets funded under UBF. We have to go through the intake process. But the point being that there is a specific uh, set aside specifically for uh, better connectivity, for, in particular for mobile. Uh, but we would expect a fairly significant. Uh, number of indigenous communities to benefit from ubf it's been a big priority before it will be a big priority now and we certainly want to uh create a process where where we can work with communities to, to help them through the process so that that has been what we've been focusing on
0: um that that dovetails really nicely with a, a couple questions we're getting but one that i also had simon which is the um the there's there's the promise, and actually the expanded promise, right? This went from a one billion dollar program in 2019 to a 1.75 billion dollar program here in 2020. Um, but, but uh, you know, a lot of that comes down to getting money out the door and 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 getting it moving. And, um, and I know that there is uh, that the, I think there's 150 million dollars is available immediately. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Why that rapid response function here is is um, both important and, and what it's going to tangibly do to get the ball rolling here, because people have been waiting for this for for quite a long time.
1: Just to sort of again emphasize uh, some of these projects, particularly some of the larger projects we might envisage uh, partnering with the, uh, the infrastructure bank on, for example, uh, you know these are going to be very, very large projects involving you know tens of thousands of houses. Um, these are big engineering projects. Uh, You know, Dean and Willa and Michelle probably could describe in much more gory detail. Um, But at the same, so some of these are going to take a number of years and and that's just, that's just the basic math of doing a big infrastructure build. Um, At the same time, you know, I think the feeling was there are shovel ready projects. There are, there are definitely going to be opportunistic projects where the engineering work has already been done or where, and again, I'm, I'm sort of talking a little bit in the abstract, Alex. But like, you know, it's it's like all we need to do is lay a piece of fiber from A to B, and it actually will enable it'll enable some real connectivity without necessarily having to have a, an enormously complicated build. We, we wanted to have a set aside to identify what are the what are the opportunistic projects that could really move the needle on connectivity, but could be done much more quickly. And in effect, try to have a kind of you know, it's like Jeopardy. This is like the speed round. Try to have a speed round so that we can get out of the gate quickly. And try to deliver as much connectivity as possible in, in a shorter time frame and so that's what the that's what that, um, that's what that window is about. but having said that, we can't do that for the totality of the money because again we you know it's the difference I guess if you think of traditional bricks and mortar infrastructure you may have some projects that are already ready to go shovel ready you know everyone talks about shovel ready there are going to be other projects that are not shovel ready because you have to do the engineering or the seismic studies or whatever. And so it's a little bit like that here, which is, you know, we want to make sure that the ready-to-go stuff gets out the gate quickly. We have money set aside for that, a special process. But having said that, the, 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 the very large builds we anticipate would take some time. That's normal. Obviously, you know, um, the, the people that you know, we work for as public servants want to move as quickly as possible, and we will absolutely do that. Uh, Minister Monsef can tell you all about that. Um, but you know, uh, so we're going to go as quickly as we can, but we wanted to make sure that the low hanging fruit was got picked kind of right away. That's what that's about.
0: Well, Dean. Yeah. That's, I, I think, um, uh, got name checked there on someone who, uh, who probably has a little bit more, um, uh, more detail around like what some of those projects might be and what sort of is the, the art of the possible, not only near term, but in, in the medium term as well. So give us a sense, uh, uh, Dean, on, on on sort of the next steps here for a company like Rogers and, and
2: other projects? For sure. Well, Simon's very right. Uh, there is a lot you can do right out of the blocks. So, for example, in BC, we've got a couple of communities, the Nisket Nation and the Witsit, that we've worked with to build uh, actually fixed wireless capabilities. It's mobile as well but also it can be fixed, uh, terrestrial to distinguish it from the Leo uh, work that Michelle has spoken about. And we can bring those communities on very quickly in partnership, which I think by the way, is also a core tenet of the conversation you have here. It really does take a few groups coming together, the government, the local community, indigenous uh, or not, and uh, and providers to show up so that you can build a service that actually survives and persists and can be maintained and grown over time. And we've done it with those folks, we've done it with the Peguus Nation in Manitoba, and we've probably got two dozen on the go right now across the country that actually are relatively quick to turn up, including, by the way, Simon, the Highway of Tears. uh, With one more partnership in there, uh, we'd be ready to go to put connectivity across the entire highway. In that case, it's needing uh, power uh, as a as a missing element for a a land-based solution. So there's a lot, Alex, that you can do right out of the blocks, uh, because it's basically what's historically been missing is sufficient funding to at least allow for break-even or near break-even economics, as opposed to a multi-million dollar investment with no chance that it uh, that it gets paid back. But if the community shows up and the government shows up through the through its funding sources, then we can go game on in dozens and dozens of communities immediately with known technology with existing processes. Longer term, to Simon's commentary, there is there are things that we can do that are much more, um, you know, kind of thousand kilometers of connectivity with hundreds of communities hanging off of it, that you can then build a program to create access for all of them along that route. Again, something we're working on right now in between BC and Alberta, working in the pipeline space to say, is there a way that we can uh, piggyback on efforts that are already underway to drag fiber connectivity, wireless, both fixed and mobile, to again a couple dozen communities that sit along those routes. So, but that's a longer game. That's not measured in months. That's measured in a couple of years to get something like that deployed. Just picking on a couple of examples.
0: Well, uh, same question to you. Um, What's uh, you know, what are some of the, the the projects that you, I think, are are particularly excited about um, that are are now a little bit more possible. Um, so it doesn't have to be perfect, you know. There's still bottlenecks that we need to break through. But what are some projects that that um, you think are illustrative of um, of, of what's possible now uh, that we're sort of all trying to roll in the same direction?
4: I, I just have to say, I, I this has got to be the highlight of, of my six months in in uh, COVID quarantine. This is such a great discussion, and I just want to echo what um, what Dean said around partnerships and seeing everybody come together with common purpose to really address this issue about equity of opportunity. You know, in terms of where we wanna go from here, um, all things being equal, if we, if we see the bandwidth that we need in some of these communities, um, you know, certainly from a health and education standpoint, um, the possibilities are, are really limitless. I mean, in terms of, of Connected North, uh, and I'm gonna speak on the team's behalf right now, I hope they're watching, um, you know, we're, we're looking at a self-service digital education platform. That will be our next step in, in this evolution. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at, at a day when teachers in those classrooms can can literally have the world on their doorstep and be able to, to develop their own customized learning plans, drawing on multiple resources. You know, I think that, um, you know, all the software, the hardware, technology, uh, increasingly, those deployments are, are easier and easier as uh, technology has become more ubiquitous and more accepted in, in some of the remote rural, rural communities where we work in. So, you know, and there's, I think also, too, you know, there's, um, and I, again, I'm speaking on behalf of the communities where we work, but there is an anor- enormous spirit of partnership and openness to working with uh, private sector organizations and and NGOs and governments to really figure out how to make all of this happen. I said earlier, we're playing the long game. And, and I think that the private sector in Canada uh, has an opportunity to really kind of step up and, and, you know, look at where they have capabilities where they can contribute because it's I've been in this space a long time, you know. I, I've had a long career in the CSR space, and but working in indigenous communities, in particular, in remote rural communities, a little goes a long way. Like the impact is so quick, the adoption that we've seen of education, digital education technologies, it's been like light speed. We went from one school to 100 schools in the space of about five years. That. Uh, we haven't seen anything close to that. In the south, So, so that gives you a sense of the opportunity. You
0: know, Simon, one of the things I was really struck by, um, and, uh, and, and, and maybe we can get to Michelle yourself afterwards as well. Um, and I just want to welcome, I know Sarah Minnis has uh, joined us. She's going to be in conversation with Minister Monsef shortly, um, uh, as we wind down this, this panel here, but, Simon, one of the things I was really uh, struck by um, during the announcement this week, and like I said, this conversation is not intended to entirely be about universal broadband, but I do think it is a a, a good hook and a good place setter. But it wasn't just Minister Monsef out there. It was Minister Baines. It was uh, Minister McKenna. It was um, uh, our our house house leader, uh, Pablo Rodriguez. um, And it was the prime minister. Uh, And so, you know, it's tempting to say, like, real show of force. Obviously, this is a a real priority. But it it did bring to bear that there are other actors um, within government that have a stake in in a role to play um, in getting this right. Simon, earlier you mentioned the uh, Canadian Infrastructure Bank, um, and uh, we do have a question uh, on that. It, it's it's it's, it's a very specific, so maybe we can go a little bit broad and then go specific. But I think largely, what do you envision the um, uh, the infrastructure bank's role, um, and uh, and how is that sort of funding mechanism designed to work um, with the uh, with the UDF?
1: Yeah, so. I mean, I can, I can give my kind of sort of layperson's explanation. It's the way I tend to think of it. So uh, the infrastructure bank, uh, you know, you'd want to talk to Mike Xavier or someone to get the official explanation. But it's, it's not really meant to play in the space where a project, you know, if you imagine a spectrum that is going to be like wholly reliant on, Government support because the business is just not it's just not economic under any circumstance like to provide to provide the service would require a, a very substantial subsidy. That's not the infrastructure bank space. The infrastructure bank space on the other end of the spectrum is also not projects where, you know, Dean can go to the bank and or, or the capital markets and borrow the money because the project is has got great economics and, and Rogers can just kind of go do it on its own nickel or it can go to the, the markets and get the money. The bank space is kind of somewhere in the middle where you have projects that, you know, with the right structure might actually be interesting enough to kind of, you know, go to the market. And so what we're doing under the announcement this week is we we have funding where we can partner up with the with the infrastructure bank for those kinds of projects. So the thinking is that, you know, you you have a project that might actually be attractive to the market that might actually... Be close to economic, and with some contribution from the Universal Broadband Fund, bang—you're right in the zone where the Infrastructure Bank can work with its private partners to kind of to kind of close the deal. So that's conceptually—that's how I think of it—is you—you you, know—you've got a, you've got a zone where the bank operates, and we have you know we're going to have projects you know potentially very large broadband projects that are close to that landing zone, and with a bit of shove from us, can get into the landing zone. Uh, we're, we're not interested in UBF to fund things that, that, that the market's going to do on its own. Uh, we, have a, we have a place, obviously, to be intervening in areas where the market will never make it work. But the thinking is with the infrastructure bank, we can be in this kind of hybrid area where there, there, can, be, there can be market participants who are seeking a, a reasonable return, who will be able to, to expand broadband in areas they might not otherwise be, be, be able to do it. Uh, without us, uh, working together with, with the bank. So that's, that, that, that would be the way to think about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Dean, I mean, so much of what Simon just touched on gets at, I mean, sort of core business strategy, um, you know, where you make investments, where you, um, you know, where you place your, your, your priorities. Um, you know what has your thinking been throughout this process and and as sort of these new mechanisms get rolled out, um, how is that having a, an impact on on sort of the lens that you're putting on decisions that you may make over the next uh, next weeks'
2: months et cetera it's very, very helpful so we've got the uh, to simon's kind of three box description, the piece which we would naturally fund because the returns work. And we're you know we're able to make it work economically off of our own balance sheet with our own investments. We're doing that every day, right? 130 cities we're turning up on 5G this year. That's because those make sense, right? They make sense out of the block. Our shareholders and stakeholders like that. Um, what's brought to the table here in the conversation of the Universal Broadband Fund and bringing the Infrastructure Bank in gives us a range to engage on a bunch of projects that wouldn't meet that first test and hurdle where you know our shareholders look at us and say. There's just not enough there. It's a 25, 30 year, if ever return, it wouldn't make sense to do it. But insert uh, some level of partnership from the government, the bank, and I emphasize the community. And suddenly you can bring in projects that would have had no hope in a purely commercial model. And now you can extend it substantially. And I mean dozens, if not hundreds of communities. So it's a very, very big deal. And we're going to take that. Uh, very seriously, we've had some initial work, as I suggested. We've been doing a lot of thinking on this, but this announcement is, is extraordinary. And we expect to be front and center with hundreds of projects that will make sense in this space. So do not underestimate how helpful this is for us to be able to move forward.
1: And Alex, maybe I could add one small disqualifier just because I think, uh, you know, Dean's absolutely right. Please. But I think a part of, part of the projects making sense when it comes to us partnering with the Canada Infrastructure Bank, is it, for the, for that slice of projects, we're probably going to be looking at uh, projects at a certain fairly large scale, but partly because assembling a deal involving us, the bank, private partners, etc., the communities, we're probably not looking at, you know, $5 million, $10 million, the kind of smaller projects you might do in individual communities, the kind of stuff that we've been discussing with the infrastructure bank, I mean, we're really looking at connecting tens of thousands of projects, probably through a relatively small number of fairly large projects. So that, that remains to be determined, but I just wanted, just in case folks are watching who are thinking, hmm, you know, I'll, I'll apply to have my community hooked up. Definitely do that. <laughs> Come to see us. Uh, but when it comes to the infrastructure bank and the work we would do with them, I think we're talking about a handful of, of much larger, larger scale projects because, because of the unique, you know, nature of, of this particular piece where we're going to be looking at projects that are just, you know, they kind of make economic sense, but they need a nudge. And, and those are going to be larger.
0: I think this is a really good segue to uh, Michelle, sort of same question to yourself. Um, uh, you know, how, do, how, does, uh, how does the work being done right now and the conversations that we're having um, have an impact on, on your business strategy, on sort of your positioning um, uh, in the weeks and months to come?
3: So I think, I mean, it has a huge impact uh, in terms of our strategy, uh, for sure. Um, you know, we, we certainly have a desire to connect, uh, you know, these uh, rural, remote, underserved communities, uh, the partnership, uh, not just with the federal government, but partnerships uh, with um, various departments of the federal government, but also uh, territorial governments, other private industry uh, partners uh, certainly does, uh, you know, help uh, to, uh, to connect those, those uh, communities. Um, you know, I would, I would like to highlight as well that, uh, you know, the Leo Constellation is a, is a massive project, massive undertaking. It would be sort of the largest space-based project ever undertaken by Canada alone. Um, and it's going to lead uh, not just to you know benefits of connecting Canadians, but it's going to create uh, huge growth in the space um, in the in the space domain here in Canada. Um, you know, we do hope uh, to manufacture the, the the constellation of the satellites, uh, build them here in Canada. Uh, there will be a supply chain. Uh, Telesat is growing in leaps and bounds and we're hiring as well. And so, uh, you know, the impact overall, um, you know, we talk about, you know, connectivity, universal broadband fund, um, but there's a huge upside as well uh, in terms of uh, Telesat, in terms of growing other uh, parts of uh, sort of the sector and industries uh, at large uh, here in Canada as well. And so, it's uh, in our view it's um, you know to get the government support um, on on those various projects uh, helps us as well uh, in terms of the development of uh, of our constellation um, but it feeds into uh, other aspects uh, across the country
0: and you know will that seem to yourself um, you know such a diverse and, and complex company that that Cisco is um, you know, What's some of the upside that you see here? What's some of the biggest opportunity that you see for um, the work that you can continue, but also now get to do as a result of uh, of this moment?
4: Oh, well, listen, I mean, the upside is the scale, right? And the potential for scale. And, you know, I just was thinking listening to everybody talk that really we, we need to kind of start as we mean to go on. Um, I think what we've all learned during the pandemic is, is that, the possibilities of this new virtual world are limitless, and, and we've set new standards and new expectations on what we can access and what we how we're empowered to work now. And you know, just even even thinking back to digital education um, across the north that we're involved in um, last year, last entire school year, we delivered one thousand nine hundred on-demand sessions. Uh, you know, from September to June, in the first two months of this year, we've already done fourteen hundred. So that baseline now has shifted dramatically. So, so you know, I think the opportunity, again, working in really close partnership with, with um, the, our community leaders is is that we're looking at ways to scale and we're looking at ways to drive sustainability. And we're very fortunate at Cisco that we've got this extraordinary technology that can be leveraged to do just that. You know, how can we make sure that it's it's simple to manage and how can we make sure that and we're making the incremental investments in in content and in support at the local community level. But, but we do intend to, to start as we need to go on.
0: Um, so we've got about four minutes left here. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm going to go just a, a quickly round the horn in a sec, but Simon, my, my last direct question for you and if other people want to join in, please. Um, you know, the majority of our audience here at Canada 2020, I mean, they're, they, they work in a policy function in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, we typically often ask the question, you know, what is the role of the federal government in, you know, policy issue x i mean this you know connectivity policy and 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 making advancements and and sort of closing gaps i mean it's 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 just so clearly such a ripe area for discussion but for people that are are watching they're they're working directly on a public policy file maybe some of them are i've said maybe some of them are are in other communities and and other levels of government across the country how would you encourage them um, to 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 think about sort of the art of the possible and, um, and and prioritize really making good on the promise that we're, we're trying to make here. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a public policy professional, if you're working, um, on some of these files right now, um, what's the lens that you would encourage people to, to, to bring to work every day and bring to that, that effort?
1: A couple of things. One is, I think it's useful to think of this kind of technology as a multi-purpose technology that's an enabler of economic activity. So it's a, it's a critical piece of national infrastructure. It's the reason why government, the government is 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 stepping in and providing this kind of support. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's not an end in itself. It's it's part of a broader, it's part of a broader policy suite that's needed to actually make sure Canada has a modern, you know, competitive economy. So in addition, the government has the digital charter. It, you know, it's working to update rules for data and digital. Uh, you know, it's that, 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 that uh, broadband infrastructure is part of a broader economic strategy, which is, you know, to help Canada, you know, build a more innovative economy, uh, which is able to compete in the in the kind of modern world. So it's about internet rural communities? Absolutely. Is it about making sure people can, you know, can do their schooling remotely? It's about that. But that's part and parcel of a kind of a broader picture about what a modern society and a modern economy looks like. Uh, and so you have to think of infrastructure as kind of this el- element of a much more pervasive strategy. That's number one. The second thing, I guess I would just say, because I've, I've also seen some of the Q's and A's is um, I, I do think there's a bit of a challenge sometimes, and it's and this is the case, Alex, with other kinds of important elements of public policy too. And when you work in when you work as a policy person or in public administration, the way I do, you kind of get used to it. But typically, things that are really important take time. That's not an excuse, but it's just to say it's like investing in dealing with child poverty or you know in, you know you know, dealing with climate change, they don't tend to be like, it isn't like on day one, you deal with climate change, and then you declare victory the next day. When you're making big, important structural changes, that take, tends to take a bit of time. And I think one of the challenge with rolling out universal broadband to the whole country is, you know, you make the announcement, but actually, as I mentioned, you know, this is a major undertaking, you know, laying fiber up to cable over thousands of kilometers of tough terrain, putting up a constellation of satellites, these things, even in the best of circumstances... Even with all of those early opportunities that we talked about with Dean and so on, to really d- drive to full coverage is going to take some time. And so I think, you know, there's lots of questions like, okay, where's the result? What will be different? Well, we're already going to see, I'm just looking at the statistics, we're already going to have, uh, you know, 250,000 households that will be connected by the end of this year because of the previous program. But the previous program was announced a couple of years ago. So it takes a little bit of time to see the results. I'm very confident then when you fast forward, you know, to 2026, you know, three or four or five years from now, the massive investment that was announced this week is going to make an enormous difference in communities all across the country. But it's going to take a bit of time to build out that infrastructure. And I, you know, I can see from the questions that, you know, that is something people worry about. But um, we're going to keep pushing ahead. And uh, so I would just say that, you know, that's it's also you got to kind of just think of the enormity of the task that's been taken on here. It's like building it's like building the transcontinental railway. Thanks.
0: I see that uh, Minister Monsef has joined. We're going to get to uh, Minister Monsef and, and Sarah Minister very shortly. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Willa, Michelle, and Dean just like one or two um, uh, quick lines about something that you're uh, excited about, uh, have momentum with, um, or, or, or one final takeaway for us. And uh, Dean, I'm going to start with you.
2: Thank you, Alex. Uh, just a just a quick call out to those who are on the line, actually, as as are online <laughs> on the line. The to do this quickly, we've got several of the piece parts in place already, but there's one more that we really need is to, and and, and Simon talked about it uh, in his comments. We need infrastructure that is available to use, poles, ducts, rights of way. These are the physical elements that when you build, if you've got easy and immediate access to it, you can move fast, you can deploy quickly. Canada unfortunately is a patchwork quilt for those who control these assets. And it tends to be quite time consuming and slow to get access to these these infrastructures. Elsewhere in the world, they're kind of a national asset and it's seen as you need to enable access to them quickly to enable access to be built quickly. So my call out to those who are online is anything you can do to help on that front would make an enormous difference on behalf of all service providers in Canada. Uh, right now it's a it's quite a uh complicated and difficult process to get things built thanks and nice to be here
0: well thank you thank you very much dean um michelle i 'll go to you and willa will end before we move on to our uh our second half of this presentation here but um uh, over to you
3: sure quickly um you know the, the the one advantage the one one benefit of satellite connectivity is you can actually deploy very quickly. Um, And the last upgrade that we did across Nunavut, we essentially completed, you know, a full 25 community bill bringing in, uh, you know, gigabits and gigabits worth of connectivity. It actually transformed uh, Nunavut. uh, It enabled, um, you know, uh, um, uh, LTE services to be launched. And so that's what I'm most excited about. Uh, You know, with this recent announcement, we can move uh, quite quickly and deliver across Canada, making a huge, huge change uh, everywhere. And in particular in these uh, indigenous and very remote communities. Those are the ones that really need the connectivity quickly.
0: Thank you very much, Michelle. Quickly, Willa, last word to you.
4: In the communities where we operate, where there is adequate bandwidth, um, the uptake uh, has been extraordinarily rapid and we see the results very quickly. But to build on Simon's point, we're playing the long game here. Um, and, and to build on Dean's point too, there are a lot of moving parts. Um, the ecosystem matters. The level of engagement and commitment matters
0: well that's a that's a really great note to end it on and judging by the engagement we have in this session uh, things are looking good so that's uh, that's great um uh, dean prevost Willa black uh, michelle beck and simon kennedy thank you very much for joining us for the first part of this uh, very important very timely conversation